Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Susan Robb for New Books Network. I'm talking with Donna Freitas, and she's the author of a book called The Happiness Effect, How Social Media is Driving a Generation to Appear Perfect at Any Cost. It's published by Oxford University. This is Susan Robb for New Books Network. I'm talking with Donna and she's the author of a book called The Happiness Effect, How Social Media is Driving a Generation to Appear Perfect at Any Cost. It's published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Donna, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Now, your background, you, um, your research association at uh, University of Notre Dame Center for Study of Religion and Society. Uh, you teach at Hofstra University. You've written other books on America's uh, college students and what's going on with them, and, and also for um, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, places like that. The The topic is really interesting here. Uh, I, we all know, and you allude to it in the book, that students... Uh, and all of us, I guess, are very aware of some of the alarmist issues related to social media, the bullying and different things. But what you're, I think, alluding to here is that it's really sort of um, shaping the way this generation thinks and approaches an awful lot of things well beyond that. Well, I guess I would say that I think we tend to focus on the very alarmist issues. You know, parents are afraid their kids are sexting and sending nude photos, and people are very up in arms about online bullying. And so um, not that th- these are important issues, and all the students that I spoke with know that they're important issues, that, but that's sort of all that anyone has talked to them about generally. And what I found was that what the students really wanted to talk about was just how, uh, I guess, the less alarmist issues, but the equally compelling ones for them, which was how social media is really affecting how they navigate, like, their their friendships, but also just their own relationship to happiness or the pursuit of happiness or their inability to feel happy and just the the ways in which they feel like many people just sort of hijacked by their devices. And so they really wanted to talk about um, those issues and they were sort of frustrated that no one else is interested in talking about those issues. So it's interesting too, that a lot of the feeling that I got uh, looking through this is that it feels like such a lot of hard work for them. All the things that they're thinking about, uh, you allude to um, curating the the right image. Well, so that was one of the, the biggest issues that came up with just how important it is to be crafting a very particular image 
um, not really for yourself, <laughs> but because other people are watching you, particularly people who can affect your future. And so, so much of social media posting that's attached with your real name, um, that's a really important piece. So if it's attached to your real name, that's what college students are learning to think about. They're not so much posting because they're excited to share something. They're posting with an eye toward this audience they realize they have and the fact that there is this audience like future employers or people, you know, even their coaches or people who are have power over them who are out there watching what they say and what they do and in some ways watching to see if they mess up. And so, so much of what um, they're doing is posting for that with that audience in mind, which requires great care. And so a lot of the students talked about how posting on social media with the profiles attached to their names just feels like homework. And uh, one of the things that you talked about there was also even even a sorority uh, example where the sorority was very particular on what uh, members should say and not. Well, yes, um, I, I've actually heard that a lot since uh, since I've done the initial research for this study. I've heard so much about how sororities, especially but sororities and fraternities, have um, often have these you know people on campus who are sort of the designated social media lurkers for their you know their sorority or their fraternity, and they are there looking to make sure that offending photos or comments don't get posted, and if they do, that they get taken down immediately. So they're very worried about the um, the fraternity, for, sorority of fraternity's image, and often the national chapters are watching hmm. their members. <laughs> and so um, so even, even in those circumstances, there's an incredible image consciousness, and of course it's because, you know, one post, can also be the downfall of a person or an entire organization at this point. That's sort of how we're operating. Yeah, which seems so, it's it's an awful lot to ride on individual things that might be casual in other scenarios. Um, so, so when you talk with students, do you have a sense of when they start being aware of this? Is it high school? Is it middle school? You know, it really depends. In many ways, it depends on their level of privilege. And, you know, if you have gone to a really wealthy private school, you know, for for junior high even, uh, but certainly for high school or a really great public school, so one of those high-powered public schools where, you know, kids go to really, um, like, you know, big deal colleges and universities, then you've probably started to think about like really think about image consciousness as early as middle school because you're learning to at school mm-hmm. and because you're, you already have an eye toward college. It's assumed that you are going to college and, and that you have to already be thinking. So just in the ways that, you know, like high powered kids all over, you know, the United States are college obsessed and they're obsessed with getting their, you know, sort of college resumes ready and everything is, you know, an eye toward success, success, success. If you are in, if you are one of those students, then you are probably thinking about, you know, your social media image as early as like eighth grade, and um, but certainly during high school. However, 
if you are not at such a high-powered school, if you are coming from, uh, you know, an economically disadvantaged, you know, area or neighborhood or, or part of the country, no one has probably talked to you about that. And so there was a real difference between um, students who had come from economically disadvantaged backgrounds and those who had come from, like, high-powered you know, wealthy backgrounds to get to college. Um, so, but one of the things was very clear was once you got to college, regardless of where you came from, boy, did you learn <laughs> to do those Facebook cleanups, which is what the students most often talk about. What about uh, differences between how men come at this and women? Well, uh, one of the things that came up over and over again from both men and women, uh, when I asked about, you know, well, what about gender? Like, do you feel like gender affects the way people post or their attitude towards social media? And uh, pretty much universally, the students said, like, well, really, social media is about girls. And, like, really, social media is for girls because girls are really vain. Or, you know, girls, you know, girls love to see pictures of themselves. Girls love to take pictures. Girls love to talk. So, like, girls love friends like they love relationships and so all the things that social media is supposed to be about girls are also supposed to be about so that was sort of the idea and that guys are much more reticent on social media and that they they don't like to post pictures of themselves so much as they like to post pictures of cars and talk about sports and um and guys aren't as vain as women like that was one of the things that you know people sort of decided so there were a lot of stereotypes i would say that came out when people talked about gender on social media, though there also was a lot of eye rolling for both men and women about like bodybuilding pictures. Mm -hmm. And so there was a sense of there, there's definitely like a part of the culture out there is, you know, guys post their, like their pictures working out so that maybe they display, you know, vainness in, in that way, or they love to see their muscles and their sort of laughter about that. But for the most part, there was a sense that like, well, social media is social and girls are social. So this is really about girls. Interesting. <laughs> Now, um, when students are are looking at all of this, uh, do you get the sense that they're kind of balancing between this uh, way of <coughs> putting their um, social public persona together, if you will, and having concerns about <coughs> how social can be something they can't control? Well, I mean, they. I would say that they're they're struggling with the fact that, in many ways, what is supposed to be social or what was supposed to be social has really sort of tipped over into the realm of the professional. And so they're very concerned with professionalizing their profiles that are attached to their real names. And so there is this sense of, you know, we have really instilled in the younger generation, um, you know, fears about making a mistake, saying the wrong thing online, and having that cost you your entire future. And, of course, there is good reason for that. Like, there is a lot. There's an incredible, um, you know, social media is incredibly high risk. Like, if you do say the wrong thing and it goes viral, like, you really could ruin your future. And that's something that we, we seem to think is okay now in our society. So the stakes are really high and, and they're aware of that. Um, but there is this sense of social media isn't, at least if it's attached to your name, it's not really for socializing. It's for presenting your professional, your crafted professional curated face 
to the world for the benefit of future employers, people who have power over you, maybe grandma, and socializing, real socializing happens in private spheres. And what would private be? I mean, you talk about anonymous social media, but is private um, texting or where is where is private it, for them? It can be texting. I, I think so. the idea where it's just between you and other person. And I wrote a lot in the book about Snapchat because I would say that Snapchat was just universally the most beloved social media platform around by everyone I interviewed. And, you know, their faces would light up and they love Snapchat. And the reason why is even though everybody knows you can take a screenshot of whatever happens on Snapchat. So in Snapchat, you, you know, when you, your post disappears in a few seconds, right? Um, you know, unless you, you intentionally like make sure that it stays around. So, but um, students loved that feature because for once it was something low stakes. So they could actually be themselves with their friends. Like they didn't have to worry about their name. You know, it could be, it's their account, you know, their profile, Except, you know, when they snap something, they know it's going to disappear. So they don't have to be professional. They can be silly. They can be, you know, um, really, it was interesting. Students really just wanted to goof off. Like, they wanted to be silly. Like, they wanted to take dumb pictures. But they have learned that if they if they act silly on, you know, say, Facebook, that maybe a, a poet, an employer won't take them seriously. And so they're looking for spaces where often where they can just play around. And Snapchat was like the beloved app for that. <laughs> and then I would say, so there's Yik Yak, which right. is huge on college campuses. And that is an anonymous Twitter feed, basically. And, um, you know, they're all addicted to Yik Yak because it's so crazy. Like it's, it's where all the vitriol comes out. It's where the shaming comes out. And so, it's generally, you know, like each university or college has its own Yik Yak because it's a GPS-driven app. And um, because it's anonymous, people say stuff they would never say in person. And so I would say that um, there is a kind of – students have learned that, you know, uh, basically in public it has to be incredibly crafted if it's attached to their name. But in general, you know – they're operating with extremes. So in public, they're very polished. And then now in private or in anonymity, they're often incredibly offensive and vicious. So they're sort of going between these two poles often. Now, when something does uh, evolve in a direction that a student or a person might not want, what kinds of things can they do effectively uh, to, to make a difference quickly? So things may not get out of control. I mean, I know things can go viral very, very quickly, but if they see something begin to evolve, then what? Um, I would, you know, students didn't talk about that so much as just doing regular Facebook cleanups <laughs> and then just trying to, they're sort of, you know, um, they sort of feel like maybe the stuff they did, they posted in middle school and in early high school could get a pass because they all sort of felt like, well, when you're young and you're 12, you kind of don't know what you're doing and you, you, um, you don't realize that you shouldn't behave like this online because other people may be watching you. Like, so they feel like the younger they were, the stakes were lower, but um, they have definitely, I would say they've learned to just go back and regularly go through their comments to see if they feel like anything might be problematic. And so I'll just give you an example. Like, one of the things I, I really wonder what 
how the, my research would have been different or if it would have been different if I had uh, done this research right around the time of the election, because this was such a polarizing election. And, you know, I'm guessing that most of the students that I interviewed were, you know, you know, warring on Facebook, you know, on Facebook, as many people were. Like, I, I'd be surprised if college students didn't express their politics during this very high stakes time. time. However, I would also not be surprised if after the election, if they went back and erased all evidence of, huh. of those comments, because especially seniors, especially graduating seniors. And I, want, I wonder how much graduating seniors, like this year, so people are graduating this year, would have been open about their politics online if they were job searching. Because I heard so often from students that, well, you don't want to reveal, like, for example, you don't want to re reveal your politics online because what if you're a Republican and, you know, you say this on Facebook? And then you're job searching and you're interviewing and you have a Democrat, you know, interviewer and they have two equal candidates they're looking at, you and someone else. But they know you're a Republican and they know this other person's a Democrat. Well, who do you think they're really going to hire? Right. So there was this sense that, you know, you got to be really, really careful uh, because even expressing your politics could mean losing a, a future job. Now, where do you think, do you have um, ideas from some of the things that they said about where things may be headed in terms of what they wish for in social media or, um, you know, if they're likely to be distancing themselves more or what kinds of things do you think? Well, I would say um, most students I interview felt like social media is not going away, nor do they really want it to go away, exactly, even if they also feel, you know, really sort of hijacked by it in some ways that are unpleasant. But I did have students who really fantasized about the day when they could retire from social media or the day where they could give up their smartphone and they wouldn't need it anymore. Wow. So there, there was a real, um, I would say they had incredibly like the incredible love, hate relationships, uh, relationships for the, with their smartphones. And they couldn't imagine not having a smartphone. Some of them, though, some of them really wanted to get rid of it. But at the same time, they felt kind of enslaved by their smartphone and they really resented that. And one of the things I would say that, that, you know, we need to think about, like, as a society, um, is do we need to have intentional Wi-Fi free spaces? Because, boy, are the students looking for them. And, you know, I heard over and over again, uh, students who would, you know, joke about how, like, oh, in, like, the third floor sub-basement, you know, back corner, you know, <laughs> by the wall in the library, like the Wi-Fi doesn't reach. And if you go down there to study, there's like 300 people jammed into it. <laughs> and so, um, and also students really fantasized about like how nice it is if someone actually requires them to give up their phone before they go into the cafeteria. Because I feel like at every school I went to, the psychology department at some point or recently had done an experiment where... For a week, you know, all students entering the cafeteria had to surrender their smartphones into a basket. And students um, loved having to hand over their smartphone. Like, they loved having to give it up and, like, having someone else take it away from them because they also feel like they don't have the willpower to do it. Hmm. And so I wonder, you know, 
you know, in many ways, like we know not what we did. Like we, we were so um, anxious to ha- to make Wi-Fi everywhere, you know, including, of course, in educational spaces. You know, we didn't really necessarily think about the consequences. And I know, um, for example, when I teach now um, in the classroom, I forbid all devices in my classroom because I have just learned that no one can resist the lure of Facebook and Instagram. Like, my students literally cannot be part of class if they are able to look at any device connected to the Wi-Fi. <laughs> and so we literally can't use them. Like, we, I, it's just not, it's not worth it. I want my students to look at each other. I want them to talk to each other. I want them to talk to me. I don't want them to be hiding behind a laptop looking at their photos. And so I know a lot of professors who are doing that. Like, at Hofstra Honors College, in the, um, the big lecture hall courses, you're not allowed to have your laptop. You're not allowed to have anything. You have to have pen and paper. Mm-hmm. And it's because you literally can't study or concentrate. Like, students can't resist. And so, um, and, you know, most adults can't resist either. And so I do wonder, you know, was it really smart that we, you know, did this to everybody, that we wired everything so that everybody has access to Wi-Fi everywhere they go, even on vacation, even, you know, I live in New York City, even in the parks, like in Bryant Park or something. If you go to the parks to relax, like you can be on your phone the whole time. The whole time. And so, um, so I think students crave, clearly crave those breaks from access. They crave breaks from their phones. They're trying to devise ways to get off of, you know, being online and social media and get away from their smartphones. And I think we need to become more intentional about that as a society. Now, where can people find out more about your uh, books and your background? Uh, Well, you can go to my website. It's just DonnaFreitas.com. And, you know, if you Google me, you'll find all sorts of, (laughs) <laughs> different different things that I've written and um, all kinds of articles, but um, there's plenty of information about my books on my website. And what are you working on next? I am working, well, I also write young adult novels, and so I um, actually just finished a trilogy for HarperCollins that's um, actually coming out. I think one book, just the second book came out about technology, and it's very influenced by my research for The Happiness Effect. And then um, I'm working on a new nonfiction book, but I'm not ready to talk about it yet. Okay. And what's the one about technology that people can look for? Oh, um, the first book in the series from HarperCollins is called Unplugged. Uh, the second book is called The Mind, uh, the Body Market, and the third book is called The Mind Virus. And so if you look up Unplugged, you will, um, you'll, it will sort of lead you to the rest of the book. Great. And let me just, uh, for people to have the right spelling, it's uh, your website. It's D-O-N-N-A-F-R-E-I-T-A-S. Donna, thanks a lot for talking with me. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. 